Let's turn to, to God in prayer. Let's pray. Indeed, O oh Lord, our God, we bless you for the wonder that brings us here this evening. That through the death of your beloved Son on the cross for us, that our open sins, our secret sins, are all forgiven. That we are clothed in his righteousness. That we are those whom you have washed and cleansed and purified in your own sight and reconciled to yourself through the death of your son. The one you sent into the world in order to accomplish this wonderful task. And we thank you for that wondrous love then that is set upon us in Christ. <coughs> love of the Father and the Son that brings us to yourself and keeps us yours and brings us in the end into your presence in eternal glory. So, O oh Lord our God, meet with us, we pray, as we meet with you. Open our ears to hear, to understand, to believe, to respond aright to your holy word. Be with us later as we pray. May our intercessions on behalf of ourselves and others be acceptable in your sight. Hear us as we draw near. In the matchless name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So this is my third week of three, which I've been asked to do. Um, and we're still in Isaiah uh, 42. And I'm going to read the whole passage again. But we're coming to verses uh, 6 to 9 this evening. Isaiah 42. At the beginning. <clears throat> Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastland shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. In the earlier verses we've seen the Lord opening up to us his servant, who he is, how he's going to put his spirit on him, what he's coming to do, how he's coming to bring salvation uh, to people, and the, the way in which this is done by the Lord, who is the one who is the creator 
and the one who is the life giver of all, as opposed to, and we'll come back to this tonight, the idols who make nothing and give nothing to anyone. And I want to come tonight to look at these verses 6 to 9 then, and look first of all at the servant's achievements in verses 6 to 7, and then we come on to why God foretold all this in the first place. Not why he did it, I hope you've seen that, why he told about it in advance, which is not just obviously relevant to this passage, is it, but to much prophecy, predictive prophecy. And so we read in verse 6 that God have called, I the Lord have called you Christ in righteousness. And does that mean that he, simply that Christ is the righteous one? Does it mean he has been righteously called for a righteous work? Well, I think all of those we can say, isn't it? The righteous one called in a righteous way for the righteous work and promised by the Lord, I will hold your hand. And that's the promise of the Father to the Son. Holding one's hand can mean to sustain, can't it? You hold a little child's hand to keep him upright or to lead him to say, come on, this is the way we're going. This is the promise of the Father to the Son, revealed obviously to the Son in all eternity, but revealed to us here in the Word to know this of Christ. The promise of the Father to lead the Son, to sustain him for all his work. If you want to say, how did he do that? There we are, back in verse 1. I have put my spirit upon him. It's by the working of the Holy Spirit in Christ that the Father leads him and helps him, just as he does with us. But in his case, this obviously all is done in perfection. And so the Father calls the Son, And then he says, I will hold your hand, I will keep you. And then he says, I will give you as a covenant to the people. And that's striking, isn't it? We we know of the Lord making covenants in different ways, and particularly we can think they're not exclusively of the old covenant uh, for Israel, the law to be kept in the land, and the new covenant, the new covenant in Christ. But And obviously it's the second that's in, in view here, but... He doesn't just say, does he, I will make you the one who brings about the covenant. He says, I will make you the covenant. Uh, Often Hebrew is is very, uh, the way the Hebrews would think would be very concrete. But this is still remarkable. You are the covenant. Christ is the covenant. He is the one in whom all the blessings are found and outside of whom none of the blessings are found. In a person, Not, not in a work And not in an agreement, not in a gospel, but in a person. Christ is the covenant. And I think that shows, throws a light, though it's not the only way to, only thing you can get out of it. On what the Lord Jesus says when he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is the one who is himself the covenant, saying, this is the covenant, this is the sign of it. In my blood, the blood of me, I'm the covenant. It's a a thought that's perhaps worth meditating upon. And we're told of Christ, this is very concrete, as I said, the covenant. It's, it's, It's open to us in different ways. In Hebrews 7 and verse 22, for example, this great book about 
the death of Christ and what it achieves, uh, and who he is and what it achieves, he says, by so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant, a, a guarantee. He himself, you see again, not just he has come to guarantee the covenant. He is the guarantee of the covenant. He is the covenant himself and therefore becomes its guarantee to those who come to him in faith. Or in Hebrews 8 and verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises, and the writer goes on to speak of the new covenant in its detail. The, the mediator, the one who brings the covenant from heaven to earth to sinners. That's who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And so we, we have this, don't we, that the, it's unmistakable here and in the, those passages and others too that, uh, that we are to say who, Christ is the covenant. We talk of the covenant of grace, the new covenant. But that is made, isn't it, with sinners in Christ because he himself is the covenant. The covenant of God giving eternal life by grace to those who are in Christ. We have read in verse 1 that Christ is called my elect one. And, and we know that that is the phrase that's used, isn't it, of, of God's chosen people, God's saved people, the elect. God's elect are elect in the elect, in the one who is the original elect. This is God's people whom he has come to save. He will, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins by being incorporated into him spiritually. So if we are here tonight as, as God's people spiritually in Christ, that is how we are spiritually in the covenant, because he is the covenant. Now, it's not wrong to, to look at it as Christ, we've seen, surety of, mediator of the covenant, don't get me wrong. But this, this is a very, I think, uh, profound way that God speaks here of Christ that opens up this, this vistas of, of where is blessing coming? It's going to be in this servant. He is the blessing. All spiritual blessings are found in him, Ephesians 1 and verse 3. And so what does he come as? We're told he comes, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Light to the nations. Remember Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And that emphasis, the emphasis often in John's Gospel when we have world is, sometimes it's, it's the idea of, more of, of sinfulness, but often it's the idea of universality, not just for the Jews. That's a, a theme of John's Gospel. And light is illumination, isn't it? It can be other things. In Ephesians 5 and verse 9, the fruit of the light, it, it, the idea there is of purification. Bright lights can, can purify and cleanse. But the main, the main way of thinking of light is obviously illumination. Illumination in Christ. Illumination about who he is and who we are and how we come into him and how we live in him and how we live for him. And as John said, John 1 and verse 4, 
uh, in him was life and the life was the light of man. The, the life, he is the life. And that life is the light. Christ himself is the light. That's what it says here. You are sent not just to give light to the Gentiles, again, to, to be light. To look on Christ and, and everything is illuminated. In terms of, of God, in terms of ourselves, in terms of how we have salvation, in terms of what that means to have salvation. Christ is the one who comes and brings light. And therefore these three benefits are, are spoken of here. Its first is to open blind eyes. Christ is promised as the one who will come to open the eyes of the spiritually blind. So that we see him in the gospel. Remember how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4 of the plight of sinners. Where he says that... Uh, those who are perishing, the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, but the light of the, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And then he says, but we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness in the creation, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Given, notice the, the given, the grace again, God's work to give us light. Opening the eyes of the spiritually blind so that we see him in the gospel. And so that seeing Christ we have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Paul says this, Acts 26 and verse uh, 23 and he recounts his conversion and what happens afterwards to Agrippa and he says here I am I'm standing here and I'm proclaiming that the Christ would suffer that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles or back in verse 19 to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me, said the Lord Jesus Christ to Paul. That's why I'm sending you forth, to, to minister as a, as a minister of the gospel so that people have their eyes opened, they're turned from darkness to light, they have forgiveness, we have an inheritance we have eternal life. You see how that, that light, Christ is saying, that's what I, you have when, when, I, when your eyes are opened. Uh, the light of the Gentiles that, that was, is there, but when our eye, blind eyes are opened, we see it and we come to Christ and we receive these gifts. And the second benefit here, to bring out prisoners from the prison. And the parallelism there though I'm going to look at both of them separately, goes on, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. You, probably you should have, end of verse 6, beginning of verse 7 as the parallel. As a light to the Gentiles to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. That darkness theme is still there. We'll come to that in a moment, isn't it? But before that, we can say that bringing prisoners out of the prison. What a, what a wonderful picture it is of, remember, <laughs> but you need to be struck, don't we, all the time. 
700 years before Christ came, and this is said of him, this is, God is making it so plain, isn't he? People have called it Isaiah, you know, this is the gospel in Isaiah, gospel of Isaiah. Christ coming to bring freedom to those held captive by sin. Set free from sin to serve the living God. But even more, although that's abundantly true, I think the picture here, more as that goes on, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 9, how you turn to God from idols, and that's going to be relevant, we'll see that in a moment, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Here is deliverance, bringing out prisoners from the prison. We, each of us, as sinners, born into this world, living in this world, without Christ, we are in the condemned cell. We are on death row. Because we're going to die, and after that the judgment. And we don't know. And Christ comes and he brings us out. Our chains fall off, our heart is free, we rise, go forth and follow him. And then the third blessing, therefore, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Our prisons are probably pretty miserable places, but you wouldn't want to have been in an eastern prison. Sometimes, some particularly cruel rulers, would just throw you into a pit and leave you there on the basis that you shouldn't have done anything wrong in the first place and if you want food you should have brought it with you and you just died. But even if we don't go to that extremes, you see, what is this saying? It's saying those who sit in darkness, here we are in a prison house. And, and if we go out and we, in the world and we, we interact with people, we find, don't we, there's, there's a lot of veneer but under the veneer, there is a despairing soul. Under the veneer, there is darkness and imprisonment in sin. And Christ comes to free the despairing, to give them hope and to give them joy. And we see, don't we, how the world cannot provide this. And it's Christ who comes to provide this. So we must proclaim him. And we must live as those, and not saying put something on, it has to come from the reality within, who show that we do have peace with God and joy and hope. And that people should be asking us for the reason of the hope that is within us. And that we can say it's Christ who is within us, the hope of glory, as Tom was saying the other day. And that we have been freed from our despair. And we have been given we're like prisoners who were sitting in the darkness of the prison and we've been set free to serve the living God and to know the glories of our inheritance. So here is what Christ does for us. And we need to say, do we? Are we, are we, are we gaining this? Are we rejoicing in it? Are we living in it? Are we living it out in our lives? Or is the world too much with us? And then we come, and perhaps too much, too much causing us to despair again and to, to, uh, to feel we're in prison. And, and no, we must, we must live out the blessings of the freedom that we have and the, and, and the illumination that we have in Christ. But then I want to go on and briefly to finish in verses 8 and 9, because why did God tell everybody this? In one sense, he didn't need to foretell it, did he? Not at such range. 
He could have waited, say, for John the Baptist, never given Isaiah any of this. John the Baptist comes and proclaims all these things for the first time. Why didn't God do that? Well, obviously, because for those 700 years between Isaiah and John, he had purposed to have a people of faith, a a people who were saved, a people who needed to hear this. But then we can also say this. He says, I am the Lord, verse 8. That is my name and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And we need to see the context of this. In the chapter immediately before, at the end there of chapter 41, listen to what God says to the idols. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth, he's talking to the idols, let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare to us the things to come. And he goes on in this vein. That's the background to these verses where the Lord says, the former things have come to pass and new things I declare before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. The idols can't tell the future, only God can. Prophecy we must remember, is not given to make men prophets. Prophecy is given for the glory of the living God, that when it's fulfilled, people know that he is the living God. He is the eternal one. I am the Lord, verse 8. That is my name and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. God is jealous for his own name. He is the Lord. He means the eternal one. He is the one who knows the end from the beginning. And he's not going to give the glory of this name, Lord, to any other. And so he says, I'm going to remove every excuse for my glory to be transferred to the idols who you carve and worship. And so he ridicules them. But in ridiculing them, he uses reason. He says, let, there we were, verse 22 again, let them bring forth, of the previous chapter, bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show. Come on, come on, do it, he say. Let them show the latter end. Declare to us the things to come. Show us the things that are hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil. Doesn't matter, just do something. But they can't. Indeed, your work is nothing. uh, You are nothing and your work is nothing. And he who chooses you is an abomination. And he goes on in this vein. And the Israelites who were worshipping idols and God says, what are you doing? <coughs> He's going to remove every excuse for his glory to be removed to carved idols because they are carved. They're made by his creatures. He says, how daft that you, a creature of mine, should make another creature of yours and worship it instead of me. They're, they're, they're made by his creatures. They're transitory. The idols, they, they go. They get burnt up in the fire or someone walks off with them. They're not there the next day. They're dead. They can't do anything. And, and God is in, points out chapter 40 and verse 18. To whom then will you liken me? Or what likeness will you compare to me? Chapter 40, 18, and, and he goes on to talk immediately of the idols made by the craftsmen. Verse 25 of that chapter, for to whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Verse 28, 
Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? He's the one who does everything. Chapter 41 and verse 4. Who has performed and done it? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first and the last, and I am he. The whole emphasis of this, the whole uh, context of of proclaiming Christ is to say, the idols are useless and you can't do anything and I'm going to do this. And when it happens, glory will come to me. When it happens, this will give glory to my name, the Lord. And it did. Because there you have it in that familiar passage in Luke 2. And the angels saying, there is born to you this day in the city of David a saviour who is Christ the Lord. And as he goes on and speaks of that, suddenly a great multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying what? Glory to God in the highest. And here it is, you see, the angels glorifying God for sending his son into the world. The glory is the Lord's alone. And it still is, isn't it? The coming of Christ and the fact that God did what he had prophesied still brings glory to the Lord. It brings glory to the Lord here and now when we sing of his glory and we glorify him in what we sing of him. We praise the Lord. We proclaim his word. The Lord is still being glorified for sending his servant, as he's called here, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who comes and delivers us. And that glory is spreading to the whole nations and spreading to the world. The point is that God is saying this, isn't he? He is, he always does what he says he's going to do. None of us can say that, can we, of ourselves or anyone else, are like the idols who have no power, were lifeless creations of man. The Lord has the power to do all that he has promised. And he tells in advance so that when it takes place, and this is true of all prophecy, but especially the point is being made by the Lord in terms of this greatest of all prophecies, of the coming of his son into the world as, as the saviour. But in terms of all prophecy, it's, it says, doesn't it? What do we say? We say all the things God has said that he would do before Christ came, took place. When Christ came, took place. All the things that are meant to be happening from the first coming of Christ to the end of time when Christ returns, taking place, including the spreading of the gospel to the nations and sinners like us being saved. What's going to happen? Christ is coming again. God has told us it will happen. The glories of the future, of the future state, will happen. God has promised. We are to have faith then, aren't we? We are to to know the Lord is the true and living God and to trust him in Christ and to trust him that he has a track record for us. A track record of fulfilment, fulfilment, fulfilment all the way down the line. And so, and including, culminating in our experience in bringing Christ and us to him. And so we need to trust him. And we need to know that he is the true and living God and we need to rely on him and rejoice in him and give glory to his name. Let's stop there.